Hello. Bonjour. Welcome to our 20th episode. The big two zero. Big two zero. We will now have been at this for five months. Wow. Yeah. That's a big It's number. a big one. Yeah. Half a year is coming up. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. And we have plans. We friends. do. We do have plans. You gotta you gotta stick around. And the, this is that's a great segue into this because this is part of those plans, mm-hmm. big time. So today's episode is gonna look a little bit differently and act more as sort of an introductory to a series that we are gonna be doing on missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two spirits throughout this year. We will be releasing that first episode in April. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to kind of give. A little introductory episode and kind of start to talk about it. We want to make it clear that neither of us are Indigenous women. We will not be telling any of these stories and cases from an Indigenous perspective or voice. We do hope we can use our privilege to lend our voices to raise these cases from the shadows and inspire change and steps towards reconciliation. With that being said, before we look at each individual case, again, throughout this year, we wanted to talk to you about the Highway of Tears. Kayla, have you heard of the Highway of Tears before? I have. I feel like you know that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done a lot of work um, with our Indigenous community here in Niagara, and I've been very honoured to have been a part of some of their celebrations and groups, um, and I've talked to a lot of Indigenous people who have been affected by missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people. Um, so I hold that dear and near to my heart because I don't think a lot of people have had the opportunity to really understand mm-hmm. any kind of trauma from the Indigenous community. And so I feel very honoured to have been a part of that in the past. And I want to be able to use my voice and my ability through this podcast to be able to talk about these cases, to bring highlights um, to them. One really poignant moment, I was sitting in a group of uh, women, we had a circle, and we were talking, and one of the Indigenous women talked about how they were scared, Mm -hmm. and how scared they were for their daughters and for the people that they knew in the community. And she said, nobody's going to look for me if I go missing. And one woman stood up and said, well, we will look for you. And in that moment, I was like, yeah, yeah. And so in that moment, I said to myself, I need to be an active ally Mm -hmm. to the Indigenous community and not just say that I'm an ally for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I still have shivers. Oh, my goodness. The Highway of Tears spans a distance of 719 kilometers stretching between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada. Since around 1970, this corridor has unfortunately become notorious for crimes targeting numerous missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirited people, or the MMIWG2S. The term Highway of Tears was coined during a vigil held in Terrace, British Columbia in 1998 by Florence Nazil, who was moved by the anguish of the victims' families. A strikingly high proportion of Indigenous women are among the victims documented along this highway. 
Various factors have been proposed to explain why these crimes have persisted for years and why progress in identifying perpetrators has been limited. These factors include poverty, substance use, pervasive domestic violence, disconnection from the traditional cultural practices, and the disruption of family structures due to the involvement with the foster care and Canadian residential school systems. Of particular concern is the impact of poverty, which contributes to low rates of car ownership and mobility. As a result, hitchhiking often becomes the only viable means of travel for many individuals who need to cover vast distances to visit family, attend school, go to work, or seek medical care. The lack of accessible public transportation options ex exasperates the vulnerability of those who must rely on hitchhiking. And if when you see, I watched a video of somebody who did a... Um, a drone all the way over the highway mm -hmm. and it's I mean one it's beautiful but it feels lonely and especially eerie once you know everything that has happened along this highway and I could see why people have to resort to hitchhiking and I we we know of lack of resources mm -hmm. I think many people do but um, I and that's the problem. I don't think many people do. Mm. I think we do because mm -hmm. of the work that we do and that we want to be socially aware of what's going on in Canada. But I don't think a lot of people know that there's a lot of Indigenous communities and reserves who don't even have clean water or, you know, infrastructure mm -hmm. to create affordable and proper housing. Absolutely. I don't think Canadians know just how poverty-ridden mm -hmm. Indigenous communities are yeah. with the lack of resources and opportunities that we have as non-Indigenous people living in city centres. Yeah, absolutely. And they are almost punished. Oh, they are punished for wanting to remain, for wanting to continue their cultural practices and live in there, mm -hmm. which they... It's theirs. <laughs> so, it, mm -hmm. you know, that's while that's, yeah. I also, you know, met, we hear of so many crimes being done on people who are hitchhiking. So mm -hmm. people, I feel like, oh, well, they were hitchhiking. So whether no matter whether we're talking about an Indigenous community or any community, they were hitchhiking. So what did they expect to happen is one of those. Very victim-blaming. Yeah, very victim-blaming type of activity. Yeah. Where I would love, there's been times where... It is raining and I'll look out and I'm driving and I look and see somebody and I would love to live in a world and feel safe and be like, yo, where are you going? Like get in my car. <laughs> yeah. I'll take you. I don't want you walking in the rain. Yeah. But I obviously, because of the world, I couldn't, you know, mm -hmm. and I can only, if you're so, if you're so in need that you have, that you're forced to do this, it's, mm -hmm. yeah. There was only one time that I hitchhiked. And I wow. was down on Clifton Hill, so it wasn't a very long hitchhiking wow. story. Okay. It was my birthday. We went out with my girlfriends, but also my brother and his friends. Mm -hmm. And we went to Yanks and the Spicy Olive and listened to bands. And I remember my friends being like, we don't want to be here anymore. Like, we're going to go down to Boston Pizza or Rumors or mm -hmm. anything else down the hill. And I was like, I'm really enjoying it. And my brother said, like, we're going to stay. So I stayed with them for a while. And then I walked out and was like, okay, we're going to go down here. So we all started kind of dispersing and going to where we wanted to go. And by the end of the night, I don't know. I, I was seriously so fucking drunk that I have no idea 
how I kind of became alone. Mm. And on Clifton Hill, you know where the moving theater was? It's now like a selfie museum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sat down on the ground in the pouring rain. It was raining so hard that my phone no longer worked. So I couldn't get a hold of anybody. We don't live far, but we definitely don't live close. Right, yeah. So I think I was maybe 19 or 20 at the time. I'm sitting on the ground trying to get my phone to work, hammered out of my mind, and a van pulled up beside me. It was a van. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And the man said, do you need a ride somewhere? And I felt so lucky in that moment that I could get out of the rain and just go home Mm -hmm. um, that I got into the man's van. Wow. And I was very, very lucky. And showed him where you lived and all these things. Well, so my one of my other really good friends, we lived across the street from each other. And so there was another night where we had these guys from the bar drive us home, but separately, like they had two vehicles and there was too many of us. Mm. And she got dropped off at my house. And I was like, my house is across the street. That's my house. So I got dropped off at her house. And then we were like, well... They know where we both live now. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, my. But, yeah, I just remember getting home and thinking, like, yeah, that was not the smartest decision I not, ever made. Yeah. I also, another thing, I don't know where else had this. I'm sure everyone had a form. But do you remember Speedies? Like I love you would Speedies. Just, you Speedies would just... are now, there's another name for it, but they we still ride. exist. Yeah, isn't it We Ride? I no. don't know. No, it's like Zippies. Oh, Cool, cool name. Um, but when you think about it, it's like a way less safe Uber. Yeah. We just call a random car and we pay cash. And, and their number know- would sometimes change mm-hmm. because they would get busted by the cops every yeah. once in a while. And you had to sit in the front with them because yeah. you couldn't look like you were being driven around. In a speedy. Yeah. But that's just kind of paid hitchhiking. Yeah. Realistically. Yeah. And it's so unsafe. And I'm so glad that we're not. I remember once getting an older woman, like older, like wrinkles, white curly hair, like granny picked me up. And in that moment, I was like, I feel safe. Oh, <laughs> but that was the only time I got into a speedy where I thought that to myself because oh. they're all creepy middle aged men. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we got into them with no location services on our phone. No, I didn't have a phone. I would call from the back of the restaurant being like, I'm done work and I need a car. And they Mm -hmm. would send somebody and then you just go home. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have a cell phone until I was 23. Dang. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I I, you have you just passed a decade of having a phone. Yeah. Um, that's not we don't have the same experience back to the back to the sulliness the remote and isolated nature of the of the area also plays a significant role in facilitating abductions and murders soft soil in many regions and the presence of carnivorous scavengers make it easy for perpetrators to carry out violent attacks and dispose of it, of the evidence The sense of impunity, privacy, and ease of concealing their crimes in such environment further embodens perpetrators to commit these horrific acts. Despite growing awareness and advocacy efforts, the challenges associated with addressing the issues along the Highway of Tears persists. There is a pressing need for comprehensive solutions that address the underlying social, economic, and systemic factors contributing to the vulnerability of Indigenous people in this area. Additionally, creating safer transportation options and enhancing law enforcement efforts are crucial steps in preventing further tragedies and achieving justice for the victims and their families. Which is ironic because the RCMP was created to eliminate Indigenous people. 
So there's that. Okay. I Off didn't know that. Yeah, they, and I don't know what it's called. There is wow. a term for it, but the RCMP would pick up indigenous people and drive them north and drop them off in the snow and cold and literally Holy just drop them off fucking in the middle of nowhere in the cold for purposes of killing them. And we are so shocked that they are upset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought about uh, when we were I'm <laughs> when we were in Dallas mm-hmm. and I was talking to a couple of the folks in the penthouse the bartender who kept giving us the jello shots he was over listening me trying to promote the podcast to all the rich people and he goes oh what about uh, the RCMP in Saskatoon where they would just drop off the people and I was like yeah that the freezing deaths we're doing an indigenous series um, starting in April and I had thought about doing an episode on the Saskatoon freezing deaths so maybe that is something we highlight I think that we definitely should Mm -hmm. because I didn't know that at at all and I'm sure a lot of people wow here is the current list of victims found on the highway of tears Tracy Clifton Helen Claire Frost Jean Virginia Ginny Simpar Monica Ignis, Corrine Thomas, Mary Jane Hill, Jean-Marie Kovacs, Roswitha Fuchsbeekler, Nina Marie Joseph, Doreen Jack, Alberta Gail Williams, Cecilia Ann Nicole, Marnie Blinchard, Kimberly Dumals, Helga Rochon, Sherry Rochon, Pauline Rochon, Delphine Ann, Camelia Nickel, Donna May Charlie, Maureen Sullivan, Therese Humphrey, Ramona Lisa Wilson, Shay Faye Kinquan, Christine Kinquan, Lana Derek, Hazel White, Wendy Ann Twiss Rot, Linda Geraldine, Amanda Jean Simpson, Monica McKay, Tracy Nadine Jack, Savannah Hall, Ada Elaine Brown, Lee Marie Faulkner, Nicole Hoare, Kayla Rose McKay, Helena Jack, Barbara Ann Joseph, Margaret Newski, Melanie Dawn Brown, Mary Madeline George, Tamara Lynn Chipman, Candace Marie Kalmkoff, Stephanie Joy Donnelly, Beverly Warbrick, Brittany Geese, Jill Stacy Stuchenko, Emily Rose McLean, Natasha Lynn Montgomery, Cynthia Francis Moss, Linda Frieden, Lauren Don Leslie, Chastity Charlie, Maria Practicante Reggio, an unnamed victim of Telqua, April Rose, April Rose Johnson, Tara Lee Ann William, Destiny Ray Tom, Immaculate Mackie Mary Basil, Anita Florence Thorne, Shirley Williams, Roberta Robin Marie Sims, Francis Brown, Shauna Lee Sam, Chantelle Catherine Simpson, Jessica Patrick Balser, Cynthia Martin, Laureen Campbell Fabian, Joy Morris, Cassandra Kale, Jesse May, Christian Marion West, and Chelsea Amanda. It's important to include every victim we know about to ensure that this is understood as the gravest of issues in Canada. 
We want to take this time to ask that anyone listening who would like to be a part of our Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls and Two-Spirited People series, please reach out to us on our socials, TFTC underscore pod on Instagram, as well as Tales from the Chesterfield on Facebook. We have some victims that we will be highlighting, but want as many voices to be heard as possible. The initial investigation conducted by the RCMP, which makes me so angry now because I didn't know that. Sorry. So the RCMP are investigating themselves. All right. <laughs> Just, I think the, the gravity of how many people, and yeah, it's, it's all just, it feels heavy. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is heavy. Yeah. But to just be at a place that it doesn't affect us personally, I can only, and mm-hmm. how heavy I feel, I can only empathize with that community yeah. and how scared that woman feels mm-hmm. for her and her daughter mm-hmm. and how much that woman wants her the person in her community to, like, no, we will find you. Mm-hmm. That's, we will look for you. I can only imagine. So please, if if you're a part of this community, if you know anybody who is missing, we want to, like like we said, include as many voices as possible. No, nothing is too small. Nothing is too big. Just reach out if you're interested. So again, the initial investigation conducted by the RCMP to explore the Highway of Tears as a series of linked cases commenced in December of 1998. However, at that time, the list of cases included three additional male victims, Larry Vu, Eric Charles Koss, and Philip Eanes Frazier, which are not currently considered connected. Over time, several individuals have been convicted in cases related to the Highway of Tears, including three serial killers, Brian Peter Arp, Edward Dennis Isaac, and Cody Legabokov. We will be discussing Mr. Cody in March. Bobby Jack Fowler, while not publicly implicated in the Highway of Tears cases, was connected to a numerous, was connected to numerous non-Highway of Tears e-Pana cases. Despite his potential association with the Highway of Tears cases due to his employment at Happy Roofings in Prince George in 1974, the same year Monica Ignis disappeared in Terrace, B.C., Former Vancouver Police Geographic Profiler Kim Rosmo has expressed doubt regarding Fowler's involvement in any crimes along Highway 16 between 1989 and 2006. Fowler passed away in prison without being charged in in connection to any of the Highway of Tears victims. In 2009, law enforcement authorities conducted a search on a property in Isle Pierre, located in rural Prince George, in an effort to locate the remains of Nicole Hoare a young tree planter who vanished on Highway 16 on June 21st, 2002. We mentioned her earlier. The property was previously owned by Leyland Chuggy Vincent Switzer, who had served a prison sentence for second-degree murder of his brother and was on day parole in late 2016. We love a day parole. Oh, yeah. They're my favorite we when they love come a day across parole. it. <laughs> you know how many day paroles <laughs> we talk about? It's, yeah. You'll, you gotta love the day parole. Oh my goodness. While the RCMP, who I'm still very angry at at the moment, while the RCMP also investigated the property in connection to the other missing women from the Highway of Tears, no further actions were taken following the search. 
Sergeant Wayne Clary of the RCMP expressed uncertainty about the resolution of all the cases, suggesting that it may ultimately be the communities themselves that solve these crimes. Although there are persons of interest in several cases, insufficient evidence has prevented authorities in laying charges in many of these instances. Then three separate articles it are literally titled, "You may, um, we may never know who did this. So they're basically saying, Yes, our community did this, but your community can figure it out, right? Like you guys will, fi- you guys will figure it out. You'll figure it out. We tried. <laughs> We're the RCMP. <laughs> We're the RCMP. We tried. Oh my god. The effort was there. What's your problem? <sighs> I'm so bad at the RCMP right now. <laughs> they were the ones who went into indigenous communities and took the children from their families mm-hmm. for residential schools. Mm-hmm. That was their purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 2005, the RCMP initiated a provincially funded project known as EPANA, aimed at addressing some of the unresolved murders and disappearances of female children and young women along Highway 16. EPANA's primary objective was to determine whether a single serial killer or multiple perpetrators were responsible for the crimes along the highway, initially focusing on three cases in 2005. The unit expanded its investigation to nine cases in 2006, and by 2007, the caseload had doubled to 18, and its geographical scope extended beyond the Highway of Tears to encompass significant portions of the province. The victims included in the EPAN investigation met specific criteria. They were female, engaged in high-risk lifestyles, known to hitchhike, and were last seen or their remains discovered within the close proximity to Highway 16, Highway 97, or Highway 5, which is all around um, the Highway of Tears. Funding for EPANA peaked at over $5 million annually in the 2009-2010 fiscal year, but has since dwindled due to budget reductions, receiving only $806,109 for the 2013-2014 to period. In 2013, Craig Collins, the RCMP Deputy Commissioner, cautioned that further budget cuts from the provincial government would, would significantly impact the investigations related to the Highway of Tears, although he did not specify how this would affect EPANA cases not directly associated with the highway. A Freedom of Information request in 2014 revealed that the tax force's staffing had decreased from 70 officers to 12 officers since 2010. I don't know about this EPANA cases. Uh-huh. I would like to look into it a little bit more. Um, but it doesn't shock me that the government was like, got to scale back, boys. Yeah, I also don't love their, they were female, engaged in high-risk lifestyles, mm-hmm. known to hitchhike. Like, it's, it's all very victim-blaming. Mm-hmm. But this is the only thing that anything said about it mm-hmm. um i'm not surprised that there was funding cuts either and they they are they didn't get their answers right away so they take the money away right mm-hmm. so where that list that we just read mm-hmm. <laughs> were was extensive mm-hmm. how anyone can have that list on their desk and be like oh we can probably cut Do this back eh? 12 people yeah we don't need any or the community can solve it themselves <laughs> Because <laughs> the RCMP is going to be implicated. So, oh my gosh. E. Panna successfully linked the homicide of 16 year old Colleen McMillan, murdered in 1974, to the now deceased American criminal Bobby Jack Fowler. Fowler is now considered a suspect in the murders of two other victims along the highway, Gail Ways and Pamela Darlington, both killed in the 1970s. 
In 2014, investigations by E. Panna and the Provincial Unsolved Homicide Unit led to murder charges against Gary Taylor Handlin for the 1978 killing of 12-year-old Monica Jack. Handlin was convicted by a jury and sentenced to life in prison in early 2019, making the first case in Project E. Panna to be officially solved through the full court proceedings and sentencings. Despite these successes, E. Panna continues to investigate the remaining unsolved cases, although it's unlikely that all will be resolved. Yeah, they definitely hone in on... They definitely hone in on... We, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it. <laughs> like, see... Be able to do it. Oh, that, solve them, yeah. I thought me and you. Oh, no, I was no. like, are we on the case? Yeah. <laughs> we might have call to, to action? We might, we might have to be. But yeah, I know we have uh, Tina Fontaine coming yes. up. We have actually Lorreen Saunders, I believe mm-hmm. you put on. So Tina Fontaine was one of the first cases that I wrote for this podcast. And through that, we decided to do the series. Um, so we're actually going to be shifting our haunted history into this series. Mm-hmm. So starting in April, the last Tuesday of the month, we'll, we'll be covering an Indigenous case uh, connected to the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We are also going to be highlighting uh, different community action groups, as well as putting a call to action during each and every one of those series episodes. So yeah, definite, like I said before, if you want to be involved, we want Mm -hmm. to hear from you. Um, You've heard how passionate that Kayla is. I'm still very much learning a whole bunch. I I haven't, I can say I haven't worked very closely with the Indigenous community. I think when I worked in the region, we were starting to Mm -hmm. actively become a part of that community, but I then left. So I, I, I have much learning to do and I want to. So and I think for both of us, there's still so much learning mm-hmm. that we need to do. And this is a great platform to be able to start that journey together and, and support each other, but also support our communities uh, because this is a genocide of the Indigenous people for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. And we need everybody to know and have the history and be able to have these discussions in their own homes and become allies themselves so that we as a population within Canada or Kanata or Turtle Island, whatever you do call it, uh, can come together and be able to support each other. Absolutely. I don't think there's a better way to end that one. Perfect. Bye.